Welcome to Fire of Genius, a podcast dedicated to all things intellectual property, presented by the Indiana University Maurer School of Law's IP Theory Journal. This is Lily. Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Melissa. And today we are going to talk again about some recent fashion issues that relate to IP. I once again brought this topic because I'm interested in fashion IP. And the inspiration for this episode came from a conversation that I had recently with an attorney who was telling me that, you know, when he first started practicing fashion law, these contracts and sort of co-branding or collaborations as we know them now weren't really that common. And so as we've seen, you know, brands collaborate and share IP rights between each other, you know, that leads to interesting contracts and licensing agreements um, and things of that nature. So I thought we could talk about some recent ones today. We see the rise of co-branding, and I'd like to, again, thank the fashion law, who we always credit with our fashion articles. So they have some great articles on the rise of co-branding. So we've seen Fendi and Versace form Fendachi um, and have a show last year of collaborative designs. We've seen the brand Coach and Champion collaborate We've seen Gucci and Balenciaga and Tiffany and Patek Philippe. Again, these are just always happening. Um, It seems like there's a new one all the time. So I'd love to talk about the IP rights that go on. For the Gucci-Balenciaga collaboration, this one seemed to be a little bit less of an issue just because Gucci and Balenciaga are owned by the same conglomerate. They're both owned by Caring. So here, when you, t- when you think about cross-licensing and, you know, who owns that collaborative product or at least IP rights to it, you can kind of think of that generally under the umbrella of caring. But what I thought was really interesting was the Fendi Versace Fendachi collaboration. If you're not familiar, this collaboration had the Fendachi logo on clothing. Um, it used parts of Fendi's signature F logos as well as the Versace Medusa head in creating a joint collaborative line where each house interpreted the other house's designs. So I just thought that if we could delve inside this licensing agreement, of course it's not open to the public, but at least with the help of fashion law and each other, we could kind of think through some um, issues that might be brought up So first of all, the fashion law talks about how each party, probably in whatever agreement this would be, would set out which prints, which logos, which copyrighted or trademarked material they would bring to this collaboration and, you know, maybe license them to the other party, sort of like those exclusive licenses and, you know, rights to use, um, but only for certain prints, logos, trademarks, things like that. So, Lily, sorry to interrupt you, but um, I just was wondering, so when you were talking about Fendi and Versace and kind of them not being under this same conglomerate, I know we were in corporations together last semester, so what type of business entity are they creating here? So that's a great question, and the fashion law talks about how Fendachi was probably formed as a joint venture. Um, They also mention it being perhaps a strategic alliance rather than a separate business entity. So once again, we don't have access to these agreements, but it is just something interesting to think about. Who can use, you know, the logos and copyrighted materials that were brought to the table for how long? 
you know, and then for the collaborative IP, so anything that's Fendachi or the mix of Fendi and Versace logos, who owns those new assets during the venture as well as after dissolution? So again, I don't have good answers to any of this because we can't see inside this agreement, but I just thought it was a really interesting concept. So I think the good things that come from it are these brands are able to expand their portfolios and they can further monetize their brands, especially with consumers that, you know, love both brands and are excited for one, you know, collaborative project. But I think some issues that we run into are, you know, getting the trademarks through for likelihood of confusion analyses, even though these are the same companies, that is sort of a little hitch along the way. You can see that happening a little bit with the Yeezy Gap collaboration. You know, Yeezy was trying to trademark what would be the Gap logo, so the blue square with a gap inside with white letters. They were trying to trademark a similar one that had YZY inside instead of Gap, but they were running into, you know, their existing Yeezy mark likelihood of confusion analysis, even though they are the same company, um, or at least connected to the same company. And again, um, the fashion law talked about how these marks could be compromising the trademark's fundamental source identifying nature because it is signifying a new entity or a new company or collaboration, but still harkens back to the same brand. So I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts or anything about co-branding? Yeah, so I was, I'm was. i just thinking about the future and how uh, Fendi and Versace are going to handle this, you know, maybe 10 years in the future if they want to have another collaboration or maybe bring back some retro kind of design where featuring both of them at the same time. How is that going to work if one was licensing and one's the original copyright owner? I think that'd be interesting to see, especially looking towards the future and how this current case will work out. Mm-hmm. And I think going along with that, one of the trademarks um, that I think actually for It was either for Gucci Balenciaga or the Fendi Versace collaboration. You know, it was done through a separate law firm, um, but maybe listing one party as the technical owner, even though there might be a separate agreement on the side that might license that to the other party. Mm -hmm. So again, we don't really know what any of this looks like, but it is just a cool thing, trend that's happening right now, and we'll probably see a lot more of in the future. Yeah, and for some reason, I have um, corporations on the brain, I guess, today. But what I was thinking when um, these two companies are coming together, and, I mean, we've talked about exclusive licenses for their own trademarks or copyrights and kind of going, you know, what they can use. But I think it'll be interesting, and our corporations professor always talks about, you always have to think about the bad actor of when, say, Finney and Versace are working together and to create something and they step out of, you know, the copyright realm and not with the two companies, but with some other third party, if they don't form a corporation or don't form a business entity together, like who is the third party going to come after? Will they have to have two different suits? Who's going to be liable? And I'm sure, you know, they have much better lawyers and (laughs) I'm sure on their teams um, that hopefully have thought about these issues. But I think it'll be interesting just to interdisciplinary, you know, works that this brings in. It's not just copyright. It's it's how two businesses are coming together mm-hmm. to form something really cool. And I think it's going to impact impact a lot in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. I think the fashion law mentioned that these agreements are probably ironclad. And I think that's a great way to think of it. Just like they have probably thought of everything with these big brands. 
so yeah, that's all I wanted to talk about for co-branding. And I'll hand it over to Hannah and Alyssa, who are going to talk about a recent Supreme Court fashion case. Yeah, so going to another kind of big brand, um, we're going to be, Alyssa and I are going to be talking about um, the Unicolors versus H&M case that has recently happened. Um, and so I also got some information from thefashionlaw.com. They're one of our big, uh, big helps on this <laughs> podcast with fashion. Okay, so to start off, um, thefashionlaw.com coined this case as a fast, fast fashion copycat and alleged copyright troll walk into a courtroom. So those are some kind of big words and some big, uh, big allegations happening. But from both of the the parties, there's they have some history. So I want to d- dive into that just a little bit. So H and M is most likely familiar to everyone, but it's a Swedish fashion giant, and H and M is known for its fast fashion and has been the subject of many IP related lawsuits. Just recently, H&M was sued for trademark infringement over its collection of Justin Bieber merch. They, they definitely have had some IP issues in, in the past. But our other party here is Unicolors, which is a California-based company in the business of creating, purchasing, and obtaining exclusive rights to unique graphic artworks that are printed on fabrics and sold to fashion brands. So Unicolors is very also very familiar to the copyright infringement scene. Over the past five years, they've filed over 700 copyright infringement suits, which is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, many of the attorneys on the receiving end of these suits claim that most of these claims are without merit, um, as the prints being sued over are ones that are most basic patterns imaginable which brings up, we all know, the merger doctrine and copyright. But most of these cases that Unicolor start have settled out of court with only a few going to trial, and H&M was one of the few. So back to the case at hand, Unicolors was the petitioner here. Um, They were owner of copyrights in various fabric designs, and they filed a copyright infringement action against H&M. So Unicolors is claiming that H&M copied one of its patterns for two styles of garments, a jacket and a shirt. Just a little reminder about copyright infringement. To prevail, it must be established that two parties' designs are substantially similar and that the defendant here, who's H&M, had access to to the design at issue or a reasonable opportunity to observe the design. So H&M, who's our defendant here, sought judgment as a matter of law, arguing that Unicolors could not maintain an infringement suit because Unicolors knowingly included inaccurate information on its registration application, thus making its copyright registration invalid. So a little bit of background on the alleged inaccuracy. Unicolors filed a single application seeking registration for 31 separate works that they had. Um, According to a copyright office regulation, it provides that a single application may cover multiple works only if they were included in the same unit of publication. So H&M is arguing that Unicolors did not meet this requirement because Unicolors had initially made some of the 31 designs available for sale exclusively to certain customers while offering the rest to the general public later. Thus, the works were never in the same unit of publication, and each needed a single application for the work. Um, So I'm going to give a little bit of prior history of the holdings in the past and then hand it over to Alyssa. 
The district court determined that because Unicolors did not know when it filed its application that it had failed to satisfy the single unit of publication requirement, but Unicolors copyright maintained valid because of an operation of the safe harbor under section 411B1A. On appeal, the Ninth Circuit determined that it did not matter whether Unicolors was aware that it had failed to satisfy the single unit of publication requirement because the safe harbor excuses were only for good faith mistakes of fact, not law, and Unicolors had known the relevant facts, so its knowledge of the law was irrelevant. So yeah, big surprise, the United States Supreme Court decided to reverse the Ninth Circuit Court decision. Um, They held that a lack of knowledge of either fact or law could excuse an inaccuracy in a copyright registration. So the justices there decided that they need to require actual knowledge that the application was erroneous, um, so the intent factor had to be there. Um, So in this case, Unicolor had no intent to deceive the copyright office in their application, and therefore they fell under the safe harbor um, application of Section 411. So this decision actually helped to clear up a circuit split on whether the safe harbor uh, rule requires intent to deceive. Um, I think it was uh, the 11th and the 3rd Circus that required intent, and then the 9th Circuit and the Court of Federal Claims did not. So this was a little bit interesting. I, you know, I think SCOTUS took this up to kind of clear that air around because I think it's a very interesting topic of whether intent deceives and something that maybe varies between copyright and patent law. What do you guys think? I mean, first of all, I just we were talking earlier and I was just thinking that it's interesting that, you know, typically mistake of law is no excuse, but obviously for copyright, um, you know, we know that two people can independently create the same design if, you know, you had no prior knowledge before. And then as far as the, you know, intent to deceive, I know um, in the clinic we've been working on trademark applications and they ask for, you know, the date of first use in commerce. Mm -hmm. And um, Professor Hedges always tells us, you know, make sure we get that as early as possible and that we're really sure on that so that we don't get our trademark application rejected if they find that use on a different date. So I I think that that's, you know, an interesting crossover here that I'm seeing play out in clinic life as well as, you know, in the Supreme Court. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And I think that, I mean, this kind of, this kind of boosted up Unicolors in a way because it held Mm -hmm. that their copyright was valid, even though that they had this um, mistake. And, you know, a lot of attorneys and uh, companies might not be super happy with this because Unicolors is a friend of copyright infringement Mm -hmm. suits. And so I think that that it's really interesting. It's great that the Supreme Court has decided this circuit split and kind of given a little bit more clarity on this singular issue. But I'm wondering how that's going to affect, you know, all these other cases. I think it said, um, thefashionlaw.com said that Unicolors has already had like 30 new cases just in play this year, which is a ton. You know, mm-hmm. they, they are constantly, um, they're a big company, but they're going after a lot of these fast fashion businesses like Urban Outfitters and Zara and Nordstrom. Um, so I'm wondering what this is going to look like for all of those, you know, the implication on those cases mm-hmm. as well. And I think that's very astute. I think um, in terms of at least small artists, I think this is a good win because often you don't have the legal expertise in trying to claim a copyright. So I think small businesses and artists can really count this as, yes, we actually can, you know, on good faith apply for a copyright application. 
Um, but in terms of something like Unicolors, who is very well versed in the legal system, should they have known that this was a requirement for their copyright application? I think that's just something interesting to consider, you know, in looking at uh, Unicolors as a conglomerate organization versus, you know, the small business and artists. One is definitely going to benefit, both will benefit from this rule, but one, I think, more on the good faith exception safe harbor than the other. Yeah, I think it's interesting if the court wants to ever further narrow this safe harbor Mm -hmm. exception. Um, Because right now, with with this holding, it seems kind of broad, which is great for those, you know, smaller businesses and artists that don't necessarily have the resources to know the law. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, you know, it it cuts both ways, too. So it'll be be really interesting. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Um, So with that, we will close out this episode. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Fire of Genius. You can follow us on Twitter at C-I-P-R Mauer I-P-T-H or reach out to us on our website at iptheory.indiana.edu. Thank you for listening and we hope you tune in again next week.